my name's John Savile. I'm lucky enough to be the head of College of, the Me of Medicine and Veterinary Medicine, and I want to start by thanking Dorothy Crawford, who's now an emeritus professor, whose idea it was to have a series of medical detective lectures to celebrate the memory of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who graduated in medicine from Edinburgh in 1881. That was after the opening of what was then the New Royal Infirmary next door, and just before the opening of this lecture theatre. Uh, we don't know whether Conan Doyle ever sat here, but certainly some of his contemporaries would have done, and for sure some of his inspirational teachers would have lectured here, including Joseph Bell, Sir Robert Christison, and the great medical officer for Edinburgh, Sir Henry Littlejohn, who has a suite named after him in the medical school. So um, uh, it, it's a great pleasure to introduce Brendan uh, Corcoran, who's uh, going to speak to us today. We are a college of medicine and veterinary medicine, and that uh, is an enormous source of strength because the two professions are indivisibly linked by a common interest in what you'll see are disease processes that are very similar in uh, animals and in man. It does have its hazards, and I'll refer to that in a moment. But I need to introduce um, Brendan. He, he graduated the same year as me, um, uh, in 1981, from the Veterinary College of Ireland, and uh, he overcame that impediment remarkably quickly, and his career really began to flower in 1986 when he moved to Edinburgh, where he's done everything from being a lecturer, a senior lecturer, a welcome fellow, head of the small animal or companion animal hospital, and so on and so on. And he's now one of our esteemed professors, and he's going to talk to you about uh, a cardiac mystery. But it, I always seem to get to introduce the vets, and last year I got to introduce David Argyle to my cost. And what David started with was this slide showing similarities and differences between dogs and their owners. So this got me really worried, a vet, a vet talking about dogs. So I thought I'd get my retaliation in first by showing the second slide that David Argyle crafted um, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. There we are, which I think is uh, very unfair to that bulldog. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, that was a, a, a seminal lesson for me to be very careful with dogs and vets and um, uh, Conan Doyle lectures. So we'll now pass over to Brendan. This is going to be recorded, so if you fall asleep, you will be recorded. Uh, but importantly, if there's time for questions at the end, we need to use the microphone so that people watching this can, um, can hear your question. So over to you, Brendan. Yeah. All right. Microphone working? Yes? Okay. John, thanks very much for that very kind introduction. And I must say, it genuinely is actually an honor to stand here and look up at the cheap seats at the back <laughs> and the, uh, who are waving me at the moment and an absolutely fantastic lecture theatre. I would love to have been taught in this lecture theatre because I would have been at the back fast asleep at this stage. But hopefully, for the next 45 minutes or so, 50 minutes, I'll try to keep you awake and give you a little uh, story about the type of work we do at the vet school um, and what we regard as some of the very important kind of comparative work we're interested in. And there's a big strength now developing in this college whereby diseases of dogs, cats, humans are being looked at collectively as a very interesting and very exciting area of comparative biology. And uh, as veterinarians, we're interested in, in diseases of dogs and cats. We're interested as vets in our disease, but we're very interested in trying to share some of our experiences with our medical colleagues 
and equally borrowing some of the fantastic work that's been done in medicine to try and better understand what's going on in dogs. But anyway, so as far as the theme is, my talk is concerned, or the title of my talk is Murder of the Heart Valve and Open and Shut Case. I really actually want to call it Murder of the Mitral Valve and Open and Shut Case, so it's a little more alliterative, but concern was that maybe some of lay people in the audience would know what the mitral valve was. We'll get onto that in a second. <clears throat> so to give you kind of an idea of what we're talking about, if you think about it, and this applies to all species, but the canine heart valves open and shut are open and closed millions of times during a dog's lifetime, but of all the valves is the mitral that is most likely to degenerate and eventually fail to do its job. And so this detective story hopefully will try to unravel some of the reasons why. Well, what do we know about valve disease in general? What do we know about most diseases to a large extent can probably be listed here. We know an awful lot about the consequences of most or pretty much all kinds of diseases. And Conan Doyle would have known about the consequences of most diseases because he would have recognized the same diseases in, uh, in his, his patients back in the late 19th century. Therapy is something we kind of work around. We try to improve therapeutic options when we're dealing with our cases. And in the case of valve disease in the dog, we have reasonable therapeutic approaches to try and control uh, the consequences of the disease itself. But as you get further down the list of mechanisms, cause, and cure, it becomes very apparent that we think we understand mechanisms of disease. We have a grasp on some of the mechanisms, but in some respects, we need to revisit our understanding of how disease mechanism actually operates. And that's partially driven by the amazing technologies now available, which weren't available in the veterinary world five, ten years ago, but now are available for us to look more closely at mechanisms. And maybe from that pr perspective of looking at mechanisms, we can elucidate causes or understand causes. But in the end, what our patients, meaning the clients, the owners of our patients, and the patients of our medical colleagues want to know, is there a cure? Can you cure my disease? They're not interested in the biology of disease. You don't go into the doctor wondering how complex pathology is working. You want to know, are you going to get better? And that's what they want in the end. So the eventual aim would be, hopefully, that we can identify a cure of what's going on. So what is the mitral valve? Again, for those of you not familiar with uh, anatomy, cardiac anatomy, basically the mitral valve, why do I have a picture here of a bishop? It's not because I'm an Irish Catholic. It's just a picture of a bishop. But this is, at the top, is called a mitre. And if you look down on top of a mitral valve, or the valve in the heart, it looks like a mitre, and that's where the name comes from. So that's what the mitral valve is. So basically, it's actually a valve with a variety of structures attached to it, and it forms this complex. So it, it's, it consists of two leaflets. It has these chordae attached to papillary muscle. You can actually see it over here. So here's the valve itself. Here's the leaflets coming down to these muscles. And it basically separates the, left, the two chambers on the left-hand side of the heart. So it's crucially important for maintaining a tight seal between your left atrium and your left ventricle. In the situation where disease occurs and the valve starts to degenerate, which is the disease we're interested in, of course what can happen then is a leak occurs, and then you get a classic murmur associated with the disease itself. And if the leak becomes significant and becomes severe, then it can eventually result in heart failure. So basically there's a leaflet here. So <clears throat> to think my career has come down to looking at a little piece of rubber stuck inside uh, a dog's heart, but that's the way it goes. You, Get yourself down to something very, very small, but highly significant, okay? So what about the disease in dogs and the, and the veterinary consequences? This is the most common heart disease of the dog. It is relatively common in human patients, but not as much as, as in the dog. The dog appears to be the species most significantly affected by this. Not so common in cats, not so common in horses, for example. The main reason probably for that one of the main reasons, at least, is the highly inbred population we have in pedigree dogs. And this picture here is showing a very happy group of Cavalier owners with their Cavalier dogs. And all those dogs pretty much will have mitral valve disease, or at some stage in their life will develop it. 
I'd hazard a guess most of the owners probably will develop it as well. So that's where the comparative element comes in. So if we had a stethoscope we could listen, we'd probably go all deaf from the noise coming from that group of 20 dogs and their 20 owners. I think some of those owners might die from other cardiac diseases, but we won't go into that. But this disease is of significant veterinary importance, okay? It's highly breed specific, and <clears throat> that the Cavalier is the best example of the disease, but mainly small breed dogs. But having said that, like prostate cancer in men, if you live long enough, you eventually get this disease. So all geriatric dogs will have evidence of this disease. And the disease appears to start very early in life. The cause is unknown, and it can result in congestive heart failure. To give you an idea of figures, approximately 11,500 Cavalier puppies are registered with the Kennel Club every year. If we take an average lifespan of 10 years, it should be longer, but heart disease kills them, we could roughly work out there might be 150, maybe up to 200,000 Cavaliers at any one time alive in the United Kingdom, which is quite a significant number of dogs, about 6 million dogs all told uh, in the United Kingdom. <clears throat> but before we move on to actually thinking about, well, the disease of this, uh, uh, this kind of disease, one thing we have to consider is what we're looking at. Effectively, we are looking at a wolf, a very timid wolf, a very nice wolf, okay? The cavalier that's been actually estimated in cavaliers have only one characteristic of the wolf left. I think it's its ability to wag its tail, that's it. Everything else has been bred out. <laughs> There's about 14 characteristics of the wolf, but if you take the wolf, lupus lupus, or canis lupus lupus, the domestic dog is canis, canis lupus familiaris, okay? So basically, every dog you have is a wolf. But if you actually look at what you should expect from any structure, this applies to ourselves as well, how long do you think your hips should last, okay? How long do you think your heart should last? Well, in terms of the dog, the wolf, seven years is enough, okay? It has reproduced, it has consumed as much as it can need to consume, and it basically dies. Whereas the pedigree dogs nowadays, or uh, let's say domestic dogs, can live up to 20 years. So it's not unsurprising that we start to see disease appearing in the latter stages of life, which say historically in veterinary medicine going back 30, 40, 50 years, we didn't see these diseases because dogs didn't live that long. So we have to ask this question about a mitral valve. I mean, how long should it last? How long will it last? How long need it last? But what's actually very interesting in the terms of biology of these diseases and a lot of degenerative diseases, is there a capacity for self-repair? Can the structure actually repair itself? And can we investigate or invent techniques that maybe allow us to, re to repair it? And there's a big drive in this university for looking at regenerative medicine. And we're all, in the vet school, we're also interested in regenerative techniques and the use of, for example, stem cell therapy. So we're looking at that as well. So there's an inbuilt, inbuilt obsolescence in this structure. And there's a degree, as I say, of bad bioengineering, if you think about it. Okay? We haven't involved as much as we think. Come back in a million years' time, we'll probably have fairly perfect mitral valves. Okay? So when I was looking at putting this lecture together, I thought, well, how can I, fit, how can I squeeze Conan Doyle into the mitral valve theme? I'm sure anybody who does this lecture will kind of think, how can I kind of try and get them together? Well, actually, there is a very loose connection between Conan Doyle and the mitral valve. This here, what you can see here, is actually his uh, thesis for his medical doctorate, for his doctoral degree. And you can actually see this on the University Archive if you want to have a look. It's a fascinating read. So this is actually in his own, own handwriting. And he looked at a condition called tabes dorsalis. And tabes dorsalis is a consequence of syphilis. It's a form of tertiary syphilis that affects the nervous system. But tertiary syphilis also, interestingly, affects valves, mainly the aortic valve, okay? And you end up with a leaky aortic valve, but can also affect the mitral valve. Now, Conan Doyle in his thesis says, why did he look at this disease? Because it was very, very common in Edinburgh. Now, I'll ask my medical colleagues, is it still common in Edinburgh? I don't know. But in any case, 
he looked at this disease, so he would have known about mitral valve disease. He would have known about how the mitral valve could be affected by a variety of diseases. But if you actually read this, it's actually lovely to read because he has things like here. Thesis presented in the hope of obtaining his uh, degree. I'd love to have PhD students writing theses like that. I hope to have my degree awarded. A little more humility, okay? But the type of mitral valve disease that Conan Doyle would have been familiar with in the 19th century is predominantly caused by rheumatic fever as a consequence of rheumatic fever, okay, which doesn't affect dogs and has become less common in humans. And this is a human heart. I'm not going to show too many horrible pictures. You can put you off your tea. But basically here, this is rheumatic fever. So here's the left atrium up here. There's the left ventricle. And you've got a very distorted valve. So this is from a human uh, necropsy specimen. One of the most famous uh, patients of or persons afflicted by rheumatic fever and um, valve disease was uh, Robert Burns. Okay, so probably one of the things that killed him. And maybe syphilis, and maybe TB as well, we don't know. Okay. But again, just to illustrate how Conan Doyle was familiar with mitral valve disease, here's a little quote from The Sign of Four, and I'm indebted to my colleague Jeff Culture. Jeff is one of our rising stars clinical cardiologists. Jeff's around the corner in uh, Georgia Square doing a similar lecture to what I'm doing now <laughs> about comparative uh, cardiology. So Jeff's a bit of a I would be Sherlockian or Holmesian authority. He, he gives me all these wonderful quotes. But the sign of four, he, this is a piece taken from that. So the top part is the, one of the um, protagonists in the, in the piece talking to Watson. Have you your stethoscope? Might I ask you, would you have the kindness? I have great doubt, grave doubts as to my mitral valve, if you would be so good. The aortic I may rely upon, but I should value your opinion upon the mitral. I listened to his heart as requested, but I was unable to find anything amiss, save indeed that he was in an ecstasy of fear. Okay, so the point about it was what Conan Doyle knew was that mitral valve disease was very easy to diagnose, and this will be back in when he graduated in 1881. He knew about this, so he knew he knew about this disease, and or he knew about this this problem. Okay, but if you bear in mind or think about the the, the advance or how advanced medicine was in the latter part of the 19th century, it was just about as advanced as the latter part of the 18th century. And here's a wonderful quote from Pierre Beaumarchais. Pierre Beaumarchais wrote the Barber of Seville. Uh, the Marriage of Figaro, okay, and then Mozart and Rossini turned them into operas, okay. Makes it sound like I'm very well read, doesn't it? But actually, it was my wife, Mary, sitting over here, discovered this wonderful quote, okay. So this is, not, this is 18th century medicine, and there's this wonderful quote <coughs> in the Barber of Seville. Isn't it common knowledge that the doctor talks to his patients without curing them, okay? The 100 years later would have been the same, I think nowadays it's a little bit better. I think our medical colleagues are a little more successful. But actually, the remainder of the quote is even more interesting. While the vet cures his patient without talking to them. <laughs> so Beaumarchais, 200 years ahead of his time, an amazing man, okay? <laughs> but the point about it would be that basically Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, put them all together. That's what I'm saying, Conan Doyle is Sherlock Holmes, not necessarily Joseph Bell. But if you look again at the thesis, amazing what he actually says here. So it goes on, in the preparation of a thesis upon such a subject, the post-mortem room and the microscope are of more value than the writing desk and the library. And at this time, he was actually in practice uh, down in Plymouth. I think it was Plymouth, and then he went to Portsmouth. And he was bemoaning the fact that he was not, no longer able to sit in with his wonderful mentors, with Bell and all the wonderful people that were working here at Edinburgh. And he goes on to say, a workman must, however, work with such tools as he finds to his hand. And this I've endeavored to do to the best of, and if you look down here, he's got my ability. He actually had his, and he crossed it out, wrote my. So no word processing, no uh, spell check, okay? So basically, Conan Doyle lived in a world 
that was basically based on very crude imaging. And this comes across in the Sherlock Holmes stories and the classic idea of what does Sherlock Holmes use, where he's got his deerstalker hat to keep him warm when he's out on the moors. He's got his pipe so he can think about his problem. He's at a one pipe, two pipe, or three pipe problem. And of course, he's got his magnifying glass, so he's visualizing. So he's, using, he's imaging what's going on, and he's making assumptions of what's happening on that basis. So he is observing. And observation is crucially important in, in advancing any form of biological sciences. I'd be very interested to see if nowadays we could uh, put in a requirement for tobacco, pipe, pipe tobacco in grant applications. You know, we need it for, <laughs> so we can think about things. So anyway, so what I'm going to do for the rest of the talk is to kind of tie in this thing that I think Conan Doyle, if he was alive today, would never have written Sherlock Holmes because I think he would have gone into research medicine. I think that's what he would have done. He would have loved what is now available to us so that we can image what is going on, we can see what's happening in biological systems. And here's a little, a little idea of imaging, how imaging helps us. So here, here we have a genetic map, a genetic diversity map of dogs in the United Kingdom. This is provided by Professor Summers, Kim Summers, who works with myself and others at the Rosalind Institute. Now, behind these col this colored map here is vast amounts of data, vast amounts of genomic data, vast amounts of technology that has taken the last 10 to 15 years or so to develop. But within that, it creates an image that crucially tells us what's going on with pedigree dogs. And just to show you here, I've actually outlined the Cavalier, okay? And right next to it, I've outlined the crossbreed. So hopefully you can read it. I'll explain what this is. So the solidity of the color indicates the degree of inbreddedness of a particular breed of dog. This is using a technique called microsatellite markers. So if you take the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, it's basically they are so inbred that they are effectively a solid color. If you look just to the left, there's the boxer, nice and pink. Again, solid color, intensely inbred. And then just to the right of that, the crossbreed, this rainbow of colors clearly indicates that the, 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 crossbreeds, the crossbreeds are an outbred population. And that has a fundamental effect on the disease, the type of disease we see in veterinary species. And interesting as well, if any of you own a Jack Russell, which uh, Professor Argyle up at the top there does, look at the Jack Russell, rainbow colors. That's the reason why the Kennel Club will not register Jack Russells as a purebred dog. And it actually shows it there, okay? Now, can we tie this in with Conan Doyle? Yes, we can. He would never have written uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Because what he'd all, all he'd have to have done is uh, get, the, get, the, get uh, Lord Baskerville to phone up the Roslyn, send some saliva samples, a bit of hair from this hound, this beast, and we would have told them it was a mastiff. <laughs> so you never have written it, okay? <laughs> but anyway, so that's, that's kind of one idea of, of how you can take an image. You look at it, you get a significant amount of very useful data uh, looking at complex numbers and complex figures. So what about the valve itself? Well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take you through imaging right the way through and the kind of techniques we've been using to try and understand what's going on. So it's part of the work we've done. But before we do that, what I want you to show you is just some videos of what actually mitral valve looks like. So this is from a dog that has got mitral valve disease, okay? So up here we have his left atrium, very, very big. There's his left ventricle, and here's his valve here with kind of knobbly bits on it. So it's actually just distorted. Now this video down here, I don't think it's gonna work, but what this one down here was to show you was blood coming back through the valve itself, what's called regurgitation, creating the classic murmur of mitral valve disease, okay? So I've sacrificed that one just so I could show you this one here. This is a fantastic image here. This is a 3D reconstruction of the inside of the heart itself, and where we can actually image uh, the valve itself. You see the valve opening and closing, okay? This is work done by my colleague, Dr. Anne French, and Anne is uh, developing a, a, a highly respected uh, area of expertise in this. I think we're one of the two centers in the world that has access to this technology in veterinary medicine. But what it does, it gives you wonderful appreciation of the geometry of the heart. So it's another imaging modality that we didn't have 
say up to about three or four years ago, and it gives us a clear impression. But what it actually shows us with, with the dog, you notice the way that the valve flattens out, that edges of the valve touch like this. In humans, the valve does this. It comes along and it folds and then does that. So the knuckles touch and it does this. And we think this might be an explanation why dogs get this disease more than it occurs in other species. And it's something we want to look into more detail. And this is an issue of geometry, an issue of mechanics, okay? The question of this is a clear case of trauma. If you open the heart of it, and don't worry, this is, about, this is about the only nasty picture I have here. So this is actually a dog's heart. And what we've done is we've taken away the top and we're looking down. You can see this grossly distorted valve down here, okay? And if you open the heart up, again, you can see the marked gross abnormality affecting the heart itself. So the leaflets of the heart are grossly distorted. So let's take a Sherlockian uh, approach. Let's just use this little magnifying glass and we can look more closely. And again, you get this appreciation of the severe pathology that's affecting the leaflet itself. Now, maybe to Sherlock Holmes, when he looked at this, his comment might be, looks like this poor valve has been beaten to death by some thug. That's what it looks like. So very gross and very nasty looking changes. So is it murder? I'm not too sure about that yet, okay? So we can then move on to actually just use very simple techniques, which he would have been very familiar with. Conan Doyle would have been very familiar with. A little brass microscope up here. He could have done this. And this is actually just to show you what happens to the leaflet itself. So here's a normal leaflet. This is where it's attached to the heart. And this area here, this is collagen going all the way out to the valve tip, okay? So this is what gives the valve a degree of rigidity and mechanical strength. Look what happens when you, the valve's actually damaged. You get this marked distension and abnormal shape uh, at the distal end of the valve itself, in this main, mainly this area here. Now, that's fine, you can't think, <coughs> well, that's interesting enough. Actually, what's very interesting about this is, why is it consistently, it's always what we would ter term the distal third of the valve. Why is the rest of the valve further back here, never or if very, very rarely affected. And this is a very consistent finding with this disease. And it brings back this idea that maybe we're dealing with some traumatic incident. That's triggering it. And it becomes very localized. And so when we actually investigate these valves in more detail, we concentrate ex pretty much exclusively on this area here. Okay? We can also do other imaging techniques. We use a whole variety of different kind of stains, which I won't bore you with the names of them. But this one here is Mason's trichome stain. So what this does, this allows us to see the collagen. Again, it's just to, to, to illustrate the point. So here's the collagen band coming all the way out. Everything looks hunky-dory till about here. Next thing, there's massive distortion. Only small amounts of collagen present in this structure here. So the structure itself has lost its overall mechanical rigidity, okay? In addition to that, just to show you down here, you get accumulation of materials called glycosaminoglycans. Uh, uh, these, are the, these are very important constituents of connective tissue. These are basically the cement in which collagen actually sits, and you get a massive expansion of this, and the valve loses its overall mechanical function. But again, when we look, we can see this process is occurring in a very distinct area of the leaflet itself. So we have a relatively small structure, and a relatively small area of that structure is being affected. If we hone things down, so we're just following the theme of imaging, how can we look more closely at these structures? So this is electron microscopy images of the dog valve. Now this work we've done with uh, University College Galway, who have a very, very strong uh, imaging uh, department in uh, uh, medical anatomy. And if you look on the left-hand side here, these are endothelial cells. So these are cells that line the surface of the valve itself. And in themselves, they're common. They're, they're basically what lines all your blood vessels, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But what's actually quite interesting about them is the way they're organized. They're organized in very, very clearly defined and organized sheets. And what happens is that these cells are actually orientated in the right orientation of the collagen sitting underneath, okay? So what happens when the, disease, the valve becomes diseased? This is what happens. We start to lose the surface endothelium. 
we get abnormal cells and we get denuding of the surface. We're now exposing the collagen beneath. Interestingly, we don't get massive clots forming. We think we should, but we don't. We don't understand that, why that occurs. And you end up with abnormal, very hyperactive cells. And so what we think is happening is that the surface of the leaflet is being damaged. The endothelial surface, which protects to a certain extent the valve beneath the, the surface beneath the valve is being damaged. And we think at this stage it is a traumatic, a chronic traumatic kind of process that's going on. And you can get to a stage then where basically you end up with the surface of the valve, valve is denuded, and as a consequence of that, then the whole process gets out of hand, okay? So, before we catch things, so we're thinking of a disease that where it's hit, 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 hit is the main process. But there is another consideration that actually what we're looking at is an ab abnormal formed valve or a condition called mitral valve dysplasia. So dysplasia basically means the structure hasn't developed properly, okay? So if the structure doesn't develop properly, and this image over here shows you a maldeveloped or dysplastic leaflet. You see the way this is very short and stumpy? So what's happening there, these leaflets aren't actually, uh, aren't actually developed properly, and as a consequence of that, you get blood passing through them, you get regurgitation of blood, shear force across the surface of the leaflet, and the leaflet becomes damaged, and that triggers the effect, okay? We see this mainly in large breed dogs, so German Shepherds, those kind of dogs, whereas we see the more thickening degeneration in smaller breed dogs. But this allows me to go for one rather, rather uh, corny, Holmesian kind of, uh, uh, or Sherlockian kind of uh, point here, because what we would have here, Holmes was a mitral valve dysplastic, rudimentary, my dear Watson. Now, he never said elementary, my dear Watson. He just said elementary, but, so we've got a rudimentary valve, okay? So we can look at the valve from the outside and we can see what's going on and make some degree of inference as to what's happening. But then we have a whole range of modalities and technology that allows us to look at the valve internally and try and build up a picture of exactly what's happening. And the more you look, the more you see, and the less you understand is the, probably the, the kind of take-home message. Keeps us in a job, okay, so don't knock it. But in, it basically, it gets more and more complicated the closer you look. So there's a whole variety of techniques which I've listed here, and I'll show you some of the examples of the kind of things we do. So back to this picture. This is just standard routine uh, light microscopy. I showed you this earlier on, and here's an example of, uh, again, the leaflet with all this kind of uh, loss of collagen occurring. If you actually look more closely, and again, this is something that, that, that Conan Doyle could have done and would have done during uh, histology classes. If you actually look more closely towards the edge of the leaflet out here, this is what you see. And we were probably the first group to, to actually comment on a very simple observation. What you have is accumulation of sheets of cells towards the edge of the leaflet. So this is the endothelium on the outside. It's already damaged. And we're getting cells accumulating. We think accumulating and migrating rather than proliferating. We're going to look at this more closely towards the, the edge of the leaflet, whereas deep within the leaflet itself, the cells start to disappear. Now, this had not been recognized previously, but it, we think it was just a very simple observation. And when we actually look at these cells in more detail, we can stain them for a variety of kind of markers which tell us what the cells are doing. We notice that the cells are expressing this particular marker called alpha-smooth muscle actin. Now, alpha-smooth muscle actin is a marker for cells that beco become activated. So what we think is happening is that there is a trigger mechanism resulting in cells within the leaflet itself that normally maintain the matrix. These cells normally maintain collagen, look after things, okay? And they are being triggered to either proliferate or migrate or both towards the surface of the leaflet itself, where they become activated and where they actually start to cause further damage to the leaflet itself. And these so-called activated my, my fibroblasts are becoming such an important cell type throughout vast areas of biology, from liver fibrosis to valve disease to cancers. You know, it's quite amazing how these cells are becoming very important. 
And we think that this migration pattern is extremely important, this disease. And again, we'd come back to this idea that we're getting a traumatic instant, it's stimulating them to do something. Here's just some images to show you where, so that's one thing where you're actually looking at what cells are doing. But if you think about it, when you're taking sections of a tissue, all you're doing is getting effectively a 2D image of what's going on. So we, what we wanted to do is to try and come up with techniques, to look at techniques, to see if we can get 3D ideas of what's actually happening within the leaflet itself. If you look at it straight on, it just looks like a thin membrane. But you cut it, like do EM on it, next thing you see, it's a much bigger kind of world. And it would be very interesting. I've thought it'd be wonderful if you could actually stand inside it and have a look around and see what's going on. I'll give you an understanding of biology. So this is a technique, I hope this has come out very well. The lights in here might be a bit too high, but this is a technique called uh, CARS imaging. I can never remember what it's called, so I just call it CARS imaging. Coherent anti-Stokes Raman spectroscopy imaging. It's a bit of a mouthful. But the basic idea is what you take a tissue and you bombard it with a laser beam, and the laser beam, high-energy laser beam, makes molecular bonds vibrate and it generates a signal. And what you then do with what's called confocal microscopy, you section through your structure. So these pictures here are four micron sections. And you cut all the way through the leaflet and you build up a picture of what's going on within the substance of the leaflet itself. Now considering the leaflet is mainly made of collagen, the pattern we get back here, this wonderful mosaic we're getting back here is collagen. And what we're actually seeing here is a marked disorganization of the collagen matrix itself. So not only do we, we have rough ideas that collagen is lost, but actually we've pretty much for the first time been able to show not only is it lost, but it's actually disorganization. The collagen is not pointing in the right direction. So to give you a very crude analogy, the cables on the fourth row bridge, we, we are told, are about to start snapping, but at least they're all pointing in the right direction. If they start pointing in the wrong direction, I'm not going to fight, okay? Stay on this side of the river. But that's what basically happens. So it's, very, it's not only that you have collagen, it's how it's organized is crucially important. And we think, we think this, we think it reflects changes going on and, and adds to the cause of the problem. So we basically use CARS imaging to do that. To do that. And this is work done at, at King's Buildings where the system has been set up, and we hope to do more work on that in the future. Other techniques by which we can look at how the, the matrix is organized uh, involves bigger and bigger machines. And the kind of machines that Conan Doyle um, probably couldn't even imagine that they would ex have existed. But there's a technique called synchrotron X-ray diffraction. So if you take a tissue and you bombard it with uh, with, with a high frequency, low wavelength energy, you can actually generate images, okay? And collagen is a very organized structure. So basically, collagen molecules are set lengths and they have set gaps between them. And this, we can take advantage of this by using X-ray diffraction to generate a, a pattern. So this here, this is actually dog tail collagen here. And what you can see is these kind of lines coming out here. Now these lines uh, are directly associated with the spacing that occurs within collagen molecules. Okay, so we can actually image collagen at the molecular level. And it uses a very, very big machine. This is, this is actually the facility at Darsby, which is now closed down. Uh, this, this was the national center, effectively, for this process. But now a lot of the work is done in Grenoble in France. And it basically looks like this. So what you have here is you've got x-rays blasting around this chamber uh, at very, very high energies, very high velocities, and then you take some of them out into your little tissue, which will be sitting in here somewhere, and you just cook it. And what it does is that the machine basically just maps across the tissue, and by the time you've, you've finished, then you've got a bit of cooked mitral valve if you want to have it. But basically, it generates these kind of images, okay? So here's a picture of what it looks like. So here's a dog's mitral valve. This is the edge of the leaflet here, and this is it, just get, getting it ready to put it into the machine. So we get this vast amount of data comes out from this kind of technology. And we make best sense of it, out of it because we have access to wonderful computing systems that can analyze this data. Otherwise, it becomes meaningless. It becomes very hard to analyze. 
So just to explain what these two images are, on the top one, this is a measure of collagen density. So the edge of the leaflet, which is down here, is roughly over here as well, okay? So the more redder the color, the more collagen is present. So basically, this is a measure of content. And what it's showing quite clearly, which we, we've understood, that the collagen loss is towards the edge of the leaflet, whereas a few millimeters back from the edge of the leaflet, the collagen is still there. The content has not gone down significantly. And again, the question has to be why that is. The lower image is actually an even more interesting one because, because what you can do with this data is you can actually work out which way the collagen is pointing. Okay, the diffraction image or the diffraction pattern allows you to do that. And so what's happening here, if you come down to this area here, this red, these red-orange colors means the collagen is aligned in the right direction. As you go up to blue and green, which is out towards the edge of the leaflet, which is out here, this patterning disappears. And so we clearly show that not only is just loss, but it's also uh, alignment is, uh, has changed, and alignment is crucially important. Otherwise, the, the device doesn't have mechanical integrity or strength, okay? So that's one technique we can use. Another technique we've used is uh, neutron diffraction. So each of these machines gets bigger and gets more dangerous, okay? So now you don't want to kind of stand near these things. You want to keep it out of the way. But nuclear diffraction, so we again were probably one of the first people to consider using this for looking at biological systems. Nuclear diffraction tends to be used for looking at, uh, used by physicists to look at materials, that kind of stuff, okay? Well, we had this idea through Jeremy Bradshaw, who, who is uh, one of the professors at the vet school, uh, to look at, use nuclear diffraction to look at these structures. And what's very interesting is that <coughs> this is a normal valve at the top, and here's an abnormal valve. Uh, basically, the, a, the B, this is one of my PhD students, I don't know why he had to label it, but basically he labeled it. The B is pointing towards area of normal valve here, and the A is pointing towards marginally abnormal valve here. So basically, even within the normal valve, we can see areas very close to each other, these are millimeters we're talking about, where you have clear areas of normality right next to clear areas of abnormality. And so it kind of shows that there's a spectrum of changes and a continuum of disease process that we're not quite understanding, okay? If you go down to the more disease valve at the bottom here, you see that it looks like the, it looks like the surface of one of these you know, moons around Saturn or something like that. You look at the surface, this surface pattern you see here reflects the total disorganization of collagen within that valve itself. So it's giving us, again, further images to help us to understand what's going on. And again, if we go back to a very simple process, of a very old technology, if that's the right way to put it, electron microscopy, we can again, can, this just helps to support our, the idea that what's going on or the way collagen is changing in these valves. And in this image here, what you have on the left-hand side, this is what normal valve looks like. So here's a, a valvular interstitial cell. So this cell is the source of collagen. This is the one that produces the collagen. And they sit there quite happily doing very little. But probably what they do is when things go a little bit wrong, they turn on the engine, they say, right, okay, let's make some collagen, and they replace collagen. And keep your valves nice and healthy uh, without you scarring. What you don't want is scarring because that's, that's not, not very useful. And what it produces is wonderful patterning. You see this kind of whorls and very tight bundles of collagen coming out from the leaf itself. These ones here are seen end on. So once you've got the collagen, once you've cut them in that direction. What happens in the disease valve is what you can see here. So you get absence of collagen within the leaflet itself. So here's the cells. Okay, the, the magnification is different, but you see where you've got vast areas of virtually no collagen present whatsoever. The valve has been held together with this cement-type substance, okay? And if you go to very high uh, power uh, magnification, which would be about 40,000 magnification, we actually begin to see, this, again, this cell over here, we actually begin to see the collagen is extremely abnormal compared to what we see in the one on this side. And you get this very fibrillar, it's, it's, like, um, it's more like steel wool kind of appearance to the structure. 
It's very poorly formed, and it's also, as I say, uh, laid down in a haphazard fashion. And so we've got evidence here to suggest that as the valve gets damaged, as the valve begins to degenerate, it attempts to repair itself. It attempts to get back to normal. But what happens is it produces collagen that never actually matures. Okay? And we have other data from other studies we've done to show that this is what's happening. So the replacement collagen is not fit for purpose. And that probably reflects the constant damage and trauma. It never gets a chance to actually replace any damaged tissue because it's constantly being beaten around the head by uh, the other valve, okay? And the blood flowing against it. So it's a very traumatic kind of model. And similarly as well, if we can, you've seen these images already looking at the uh, disease valve. If we take a cross-section, use this uh, transmission electron microscopy, we can see these are the endothelial cells. You see these cells here? So that's them out here. And they're all grossly abnormal. They're extremely abnormal. They're very, very activated. There's something happening with them. We don't know exactly what it is. But as a consequence of that, we're getting this cell here is migrating towards the surface. We're getting destruction and damage to the uh, collagen matrix underneath. And so overall, we're getting a lot of information just by these images. We still don't know what's going on here, but uh, we have uh, some ideas what might be happening. Okay. And I'm actually fairly well ahead of time, so only just one or two slides to go. So that's one way we can do this, where we can actually image things, and we can actually get a much better appreciation of what's going on. In recent years, we've obviously come into the area of the genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics era, metabolomics. Any, anything with an X at the end of it sounds, it's sexy science, okay? I mean, I don't understand how it works, but it, it's, it's very interesting. Now, as a clinician, I'm a, I'm a clinician. Most of the stuff I don't understand. You, you pay people to do this kind of stuff, and um, you ge generate gels and all that kind of thing. But just to show you examples of what's happening in the dog, and what the, again, this is still imaging. This is still looking at images and making, assum not assumptions, but thinking about what's going on. Again, I just have an, an idea of Sherlock Holmes looking at these things and trying to figure out what's happening. But this picture on the left here, this is um, a transcriptomic profile from dogs with, with heart disease. This is produced by Mark Yama. It's a few years old now, but Mark works in uh, University of Pennsylvania Vet School in the United States. And what Mark has done here, he's actually looked at gene expression He's getting an index of gene expression in the dog valves, okay? And what he has at the bottom here is four dogs that are normal, and he's got four dogs that are diseased, okay? And the coloration you can see in these patterns indicates if a gene has been upregulated, meaning there's more gene around, or a gene is downregulated, meaning there's less gene around. And the presumption is that the gene is producing protein. You can't necessarily presume that, but those genes and their proteins are fundamental to the disease process, okay? So again, pattern recognition. If you actually just look at this relatively closely, what you can clearly see at this end, and each one of these bands re represents part of a gene, maybe not a full gene, but basically what you have here is that this pattern here is distinctly different from this pattern over here. And so just by that pattern recognition, we can say, here's a cluster or group of genes that we think would be interesting, genes that we should look at more closely. If you then take the gene and you, you move on to say, well, genes encode for proteins, okay? So you want to figure out what proteins are there, then use the technique of proteomics. And this is a paper that just came out recently uh, from uh, Chris Orton's group in Colorado State University, and the vet school has a close association with Colorado State. And Chris Scott has worked on this technique of proteomics. So it produces this, this graph, and you look at it and you think, oh my God, you know, it's all this data. And it produces vast amounts of data, okay? We've done proteomics as well in the dog. Uh, we can identify 1,800 or so proteins in the dog valves, and we can identify uh, changes of probably about 200 proteins between the normal and abnormal. So it gets quite complicated. Uh, but what he's actually shown here, if you actually look at the, the way he's characterized these, these proteins, how they're presented, if you look very closely, 
the extracellular matrix and the cytoskeletal proteins make up a significant amount of what's going on. It's not unexpected. It's not as if you know, we didn't expect to have these kind of findings. There are a lot of other proteins that are in there that may be uh, significant. Interestingly, inflammatory proteins up here are something we're interested in. We've got one of our students is going to start looking at this more closely uh, in cavaliers with, with valve disease in case it's an inflammatory response. We don't think it is, but we need to double check that. But it's basically what you can see down here is proteins that are important in matrix, which is collagen and what makes collagen, okay? But interestingly as well, and we found this also in our studies, is cytoskeletal proteins. These are proteins that are actually important in cells maintaining structure, okay? Otherwise, all cells would look like amoebas, just all fall apart and not go very far. But cytoskeletal proteins are important for cells to divide, they're important for cells you know, to proliferate, they're important for cells to migrate. And we do get a definite change in these proteins. And just on the bottom here, just to show how you can pick these up using this, the, this technology, this is a protein called tropomycin. This is from a dog's with, this is a normal dog on the left, and in the middle is a dog with mild disease, and in the far, on the right-hand side is a dog with severe disease. Now, I'll just draw your attention to this protein here, tropomycin. Tropomycin is a contractile protein, predominantly found in cardiac uh, muscle cells, but also found in other cell types, and probably is uh, associated with the cytoskeleton of the cell itself. And what happens is, as the disease progresses, you see the way it's now fainter? And as you go further on, it's actually gone. It should be here somewhere else. Now, I had a PhD student who was working on this and now works in a lab in Houston. And guess what he had to do when he had to go through the gels? He had a computer program that would allow him to match the two gels together and he could see what the differences were. And he didn't believe it. So what he had to do is he had to look at the gels himself very closely. And what did he use? A magnifying glass. Sherlock Holmes, he didn't, have a, he didn't have a hat on, but he had to get down and he had to look through all the gels with his magnifying glass to see where the differences were. So observation is still crucially important in biology uh, and long may it last because the day when computers can do all this for us, we'll be all out of a job, okay? So just to, to finish off, um, what we think is going on with this disease, is it murder? Well, not necessarily. I was just looking for a snappy title so I could get you lot in here today. But we think, that we think that we're dealing with a trauma model. We think we're dealing with a traumatic, lifelong uh, condition or lifelong trauma condition that occurs from very early on in life. And we have looked at dogs of approximately a year of age, and we can actually see disease in dogs that, dogs that young. We don't know if the, similar, the disease in humans has a similar kind of onset, and I'm highly unlikely that it'll, it'll be investigated because it'd be very hard to get the samples to look at. So we've got a trauma model with inappropriate repair. We think that's what's happening. We think there's endothelial damage. That triggers it. There's transformation of endothelium. They're sending signals into the substance of the valve itself. Triggers these interstitial cell changes. They start proliferating. They start migrating. They start producing lots of chemicals which destroy collagen. They start producing the wrong type of collagen. Everything goes absolutely haywire. Okay? So we have coined a term of discollagenesis, which is different from fibrosis. Some people used to refer to this as a fibrotic condition, and we're fairly convinced that's not the case. So it's a discollagenesis, a reduction in collagen production, a disorganization, and a failure of maturation. And we actually think it's actually the disorganization is probably the crucial trigger why a dog's valve gets worse and worse and worse very quickly, particularly as they get older, things certainly fall apart. A valve where you don't have the collagen organized in the right direction is feeding the wrong signals to the endothelial surface, and we think that is triggering events deep within the valve itself. Okay? So how are we going to go forward? Well, basically, we have a lovely relationship, if that's the right way to put it, with the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel Club uh, of the UK, mainly, mainly the English branch. They're a wonderful bunch of ladies, typically, usually ladies. There's the odd, there's occasional man in there, whatever, like that, okay? And they have these lovely dogs, and they 
have a wonderful system whereby they are basically donating their dogs to biomedical research. So we have a system worked out with Cambridge University whereby all dogs, all dogs that are donated go to Cambridge, go to the pathologists, they take out the valve, send them to us to Edinburgh, and they're interested in looking at a neurological disease very common in Cavaliers called stringomyelia, nasty disease that these dogs get. But there's a limitation as to actually how much tissue we can get. How, many, how much tissue can you get? We don't have, as occurs with maybe in the medical side of things, where you have more access to post-mortem tissue, more access to uh, necropsy tissue, etc. Unfortunately, if that's the right way to put it, uh, our clients tend to uh, prefer to bury our patients in the back garden rather than let us uh, start doing any research on them. So we've come up with a different approach, which we're now going to try and push forward, and hopefully this will give us uh, a, a way to deal with this, uh, investigate this disease in the future. So this here is a tissue-engineered valve, okay? The basic idea of tissue engineering valves, you've, you'll have heard of all these processes. The, one of the best examples is the lady with the tissue engineered trachea, trachea that recently had that done, I think, in Italy. Well, there's a lot of interest in tissue engineered valves to replace valves in human patients. There's a, a, a shift away from the idea of using these structures to replace your valves, because in fact, there's far more simple, easier ways of improving valve function in humans, simple surgical techniques. And to actually put in this biologically or this in-lab derived Frankenstein-type structure into, into hearts, I think a lot of cardiologists would be a little bit worried about, to say the least. But what it is doing, it is generating a structure, tissue-engineered heart valves, which we believe could be better used to actually look at mechanisms, and in particular, to look at the idea of drug therapy. And so what you have here, just picture basically shows it. Here's, here's actually valves are sitting in this tray here. But this is actually probably the most exciting bit. This is a bioreactor. This is, this, is, this is real Frankenstein stuff. This is basically the valve is sitting in here, and you can actually play around with it. You can keep these things alive for weeks on end. You can actually change the media. You can change the media conditions. You can actually insult it. You can go in there. We have side port. You can go in. We haven't built this yet, but it's been, built, uh, in, uh, it's been used in University of Aachen. You can go in. You can damage the valve. You can see what's happening. You can pressure load it. You can flow pressure changes, all these kind of things. And that we, hopefully, in due course, we'll end up with a system that won't, won't be exactly a dog valve, but won't be far off and will allow us to do further research in this area. So that, we think, is going to be the way forward, and uh, hopefully that will come to something. Okay? So just to finish... Is it murder, murder the mitral valve? Well, I think, excuse the horrible pun, it is an open and shut case, okay? There's a lot of opening, and there's a lot of shutting. And we think that might be the main contributing factor to this disease of developing. But of course, to, to quote uh, our great friend, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and as I say, Sherlock Holmes, it's really Conan Doyle. I don't think it's Joseph Bell, it's Conan Doyle, okay? The temptation to form premature theories upon insufficient data is the bane of our profession. And I think we'd all agree that uh, we, we have to, uh, maintain that maxim, that aphorism uh, in mind whenever we're doing biomedical research. And I'll start, I'll stop then, but before I do so, I want to just acknowledge uh, the people who have worked with some of my collaborators and the funding. We get, we get a lot of good funding from some of the, some of the more altruistic, um, uh, how do you say, pet funding bodies. And a lot of veterinary uh, research, companion animal research is dependent on those, on those sources, but hopefully uh, funding will come maybe from different sources as the comparative elements of these diseases are recognized. And I just want to acknowledge my main collaborators are at the Helmholtz Institute in Aachen, University College Galway, uh, and University College Dublin, and of course, the veterinary school is now closely integrated with the Rosalind Institute, which is giving us wonderful access to great resources, and I'll stop there.
great. Well done, Brendan. Now, there must be questions after such a wonderful performance. It was a brilliant bit of teaching. Uh, I don't know if anyone would like to ask a question. I'm not sure how we... Is this the only mic? Do we have to... Have we got another one, have we? Well, we've got lots of mics, have we? Oh, there's one. <laughs> there's any so, uh, does anyone want to ask Brendan anything? I'll start then before Dorothy yeah, does. <laughs> um, so, in, in the human, Brendan, uh, patients with mitral valve disease are uh, at risk of endocarditis, an infection of the lining of the heart, very nasty infection thought to be due to bugs getting into the bloodstream from bad teeth yeah. and settling out yeah. on the abnormal valve. Yeah. Now, you know, in my experience, the mouth of a dog is never a very pleasant place. So do these uh, Cavalier King Charles animals get endocarditis? No, the, cu the curious thing about the dog is that it's a very good question because we'd expect this to be very common. Interestingly, the dog, uh, endocarditis affects the aortic valve but it's extremely rare, very, very rare, and it tends to affect dogs that have aortic stenosis, which is mainly the boxer breed. But what's curious about the dog, and if you look at the dog valve, you saw those images where you have massive denuding of the surface of the valve, and we see no clots, we see no accumulation of uh, platelets on the surface, and we don't quite understand why. So the dog, to a certain extent, must have some inbuilt mechanism by which they can deal with these situations. But for example, when the valves get, when the chambers get very big, they don't develop clots either. Cats do. Dogs don't. So there's something curious about the biology of the dog valve, why they don't. And yes, I wouldn't kiss my dog. Uh, <laughs> it's me surprised what some people do. Yeah. I expect the dog's relieved about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, given what you said... Oh, While Dorothy's making her thing work, can I ask you <laughs> one other question? And I'll perhaps just lend her this. Um, I think that's coming on now, actually. Um, you emphasised that this was a disease that was highly breed-specific, yeah. and you showed as evidence that, you know, these um, breeds are really inbred strains. Yeah. Uh, so is there any possibility of looking for genetic differences between yeah. strains that are very susceptible and strains yeah. that aren't? Yeah. I would have thought that in terms of the, would have yeah. almost done that as a yeah. matter of course. Well, well interestingly... Uh, I mean, that, that comment about uh, using uh, these powerful technologies for looking at disease uh, differences in genomics, et cetera, has only become feasible in the last, say, four or five years because the dog genome is now being sequenced. So human was done 10 years ago. So actually, at the moment, there is a large project going on across Europe called Lupa, which is a play on the, on the word for a, a wolf, which is looking at various diseases like this. And so there is uh, work looking at SNP, using SNPs to look at arrays and look across the dog. And the SNP, SNP arrays for dogs have improved dramatically over the years. We've done a little bit of work at the Roslyn, uh, but probably not enough to find distinct differences. But that work is ongoing. And it, we'd expect it will throw up, it'll, it'll throw up information. It'll throw up differences between these dogs that would en enable you to say, well, this is probably a a possibly a triggering mechanism. What's interesting about the Cavalier is that it develops the disease earlier than all other dogs, it advances quicker than all other dogs, and it becomes catastrophic much quicker. But all dogs get it. No matter which dog you are, all dogs will have it. And so I think teasing out that aspect is going to be problematic, because this is, without a doubt, a tr truly polygenic trait. It's not going to be a single gene defect. Well done, I'm afraid that was my question. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> enough. Anyone else, if, uh, has anyone else got a question? And not to give anyone a guide, but 
what I would say is it wasn't what I was expecting, but it was still highly enjoyable. Brendan, that was brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. This production is copyright.